Welcome to the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Full Disc Aviation Podcast, the podcast for all things aviation and aviation photography. I'm your host, Nick Moore, and with me is my friend, Ryan Kelly. How are you doing, my friend? I'm great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing all right. Got up early this morning, but it was for good reason. Absolutely. So, I don't know. What do you think? Should we talk about the weather for a little bit, or should we just jump into our interview? No, this was a fun one. Let's go ahead and jump right in. All right, let's do that. Back in the spring of 2018, I attended the Sun and Fun Fly-In and was introduced to a face-melting performance by the United States Air Force Viper demo team for the first time. This demonstration featured a lot of noise, speed, afterburner, and vapor-inducing hard pulls. I was quickly made a fan. Fortunately for me, I was able to see this demo at several shows over the next year. To this day, anytime I hear the opening riff of the Avenged Sevenfold song Hail to the King, I have a moment. I cannot stop thinking of our guest lighting the afterburner of his F-16 just to go roaring down the runway capped off with a low-altitude, hard pull away from the crowd. Not only did he fly an amazing demonstration, he was a great ambassador for the United States Air Force, and he changed the game for airshow performers utilizing social media to interact with fans. We at Full Disc Aviation are thrilled to have former commander and pilot of the Viper Demo Team and host of the brand new podcast named The Afterburn, Air Force Major John Waters, call sign Rain, on the show with us. Rain, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. How are you doing today? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Um, thanks for the intro. Definitely makes me feel good. I was very fortunate to be able to do that. So I'm glad uh, we were able to cross paths and see what I did on the demo team. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it left an impression. We'll just say that much. But uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, before we dive into the details, would you take a few moments and just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I grew up in a, an aviation town, a lot of Delta pilots, Petrie City, Georgia, which got the hook uh, for aviation at a young age. September 10th, 2001 was the first flight I took in a Cessna 152. Obviously, the next day uh, changed the lives for many people, uh, myself included, and put me on a path where I wanted to serve our country. And best of both worlds, I was able to join the Air Force and pursue my kind of passion for aviation and uh, fly in the Air Force. I went to Georgia Tech. I did ROTC. Spent a lot of time working hard in order to earn a pilot slot out of there. Fortunate to do that. Then moved on to pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base. I stayed there for a little bit doing uh, first assignment instructor pilot in the T-6, so teaching new guys how to fly. And then moved on um, to the F-16 where I wrapped up my time flying the F-16 as the F-16 uh, demo pilot, which was an amazing assignment traveling around the world. I was very fortunate to do it. So uh, I was able to do more in my Air Force career than I ever imagined. I was very fortunate um, and blessed to be able to do it. So I look back on it fondly. Well, that's great. So now that we've established that you, know, you are, in fact, a former Air Force fighter pilot, uh, let's, let's take a little deeper dive into how you got there. Um, you talked about September 11th. Was that kind of the, the sole reason why you decided for the Air Force, or did it go back further than that? 
So my grandfather, he he was a gunner on a B seventeen. He didn't go to combat. He was he got there late in the war. Um, but that's the only person in my family that that served in the military. And it really came down to being exposed to the military aviation culture and possibility that drove my interest. My dad saw that, hey, you know, you might actually like being a pilot um, and kind of help guide me and mentor me to find some aviation mentors, which I think like laid the bedrock. But for September 11th, that, that solidified what I wanted to do. I remember that morning, um, you know, I think like most Americans, all we wanted to do was to find out who, who did this and we wanted to get, get payback for it. I was no different. You know, I weighed options of just going straight into the military enlisting um, to get into the fight. And, you know, after, I think, you know, a cooling period and, you know, some, again, some more self-assessment of where I wanted to be. I wanted to, I wanted to fly and I knew um, if I still put in the, the work and effort, it might just be a little bit longer for me to get into the fight, but I would be able to get there. Um, yeah, so it's, I, I, I think, again, there was some family history there. And there was some motivation to be involved in aviation and the military to begin with. Because I think um, no matter what, you have to have some kind of trigger point. But I had that, that foundation there as a young kid. And then no kidding, when September 11 happened, uh, I knew that's, that's what I wanted to go do. So when you joined up, were you, were you dead set on, on being a pilot at that point? Or did you just want to do whatever you could to help in any way you could? Yeah, it, it was it was a mix. I think in the beginning, like I was dead set on I was going to help no matter what, and if I wasn't going to be a pilot, I was still going to serve. But my goal was to be a pilot, and I joke with some of my other buddies like sometimes there's no plan B. That's not necessarily the the best avenue to go. But um, when it came time in ROTC to put in your dream sheet of what jobs you wanted in the rated career field, like pilot, navigator, uh, missileer, I think now intelligence is is rated. It goes back and forth. The only thing I put down was pilot. So like it was, I'm going to be a pilot and, and nothing else as far as rated, because once you get locked into a rated career field, you buy commitments in those career fields. Like a navigator, I think it's like six years. So I knew if I didn't get a pilot slot out of ROTC, there's still options inside of active duty air force to transition. So if I was going to end up being a communications officer, my next plan was, well, I'm going to go be the best communications officer and then apply to be a pilot, just go uh, late rated, as they call it, uh, in my career. So I would have definitely found myself in the Air Force, I think, no matter what. Um, and if I had not been a pilot, I think I'd still have just been driving and pushing and doing everything I could have to, to get into the air. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience when you did find out um, that you were selected for pilot training? It was, it was really exciting and rewarding, again, because I had spent probably the last seven years of my life at that point. Everything I did was focused on becoming a pilot. So every club I joined, every sports team I was a participant on, all the hard work to get decent grades. And again, I was like a superstar, a student. But everything I did, the jobs, everything was focused. And it was a stepping stone in my mind of how to further my goal to become a pilot how to become an Air Force pilot. Um, and so I remember, you know, it was a spring day, um, my junior year, that's when they, they tell you. And obviously, like, as you can imagine, like 
you've put seven years worth of hard work into this really long-term goal. And so when it finally comes true, like it's really exciting. But then also it's like, it's just the beginning too, right? Like all this is, is a ticket to the show and you have to show up and perform at pilot training. And there's still a bunch of things like you have to go through a very long, say very long. It's like a three day medical process. And guys, again, I'm very, I'm very blessed to be able to have done what I did. Um, and I have friends who you would look at and then up to that point, they had no idea they had like a medical issue, but they would go after they get their pilot slot. We'd go out to Brooks air force base in San Antonio and do this medical screening and guys would get disqualified there for some unknown medical issue, some heart murmur or something they had no clue that existed. So getting through that and then graduating commissioning and now showing up to pilot training again, like just getting that ticket to go to pilot training is, is the beginning, but it is very exciting knowing that all this work has paid off that like, Hey, at least I get a shot now to go out there and, and do what I wanted to, or, you know, go out there and do what I wanted to and, uh, hopefully succeed. So you mentioned you had, uh, you had a little bit of time in the, uh, and the mighty uh, Cessna 150 prior to this, did, um, did you finish any ratings or anything before you, uh, before you joined up? I did. I had my private pilot's license and, you know, after pilot training, I stayed to teach and we saw people from all walks of life. They would be regional pilots to someone who had just the 10 hours of DA 20 time that the air force provides during the screening process. That's after you graduate, go to pilot. Again, it's another, another filter there, just like the medical, the air force is going to send people through a DA 20 for a short program just to make sure that, you know, they can, they have the eye hand coordination. They're not going to get sick. They have the aptitude, um, to go fly the T six just to save money. Cause flying a DA 20 is obviously cheaper than a, than a T six two. Um, but again, like that's not necessarily a prerequisite to being a pilot in the air force. I tell people, I think the more air you have underneath you, the more airmanship you potentially have. So it can't hurt. The only way it can hurt people is when they bring these preconceived notions. Like if you, I saw RJ pilots with 4,000 hours would be the best in pilot training. And then they would also be the dead last in pilot training because the air force way is different than the regional way or wherever you learned it flight school x y or z so you have to have an open mind going into it that hey i do have some flying experience but i'm going to learn the air force way and just kind of chalk that up so that's a really long answer to yes i had i had a rating and it was just my private pilot's license but up in that too i hadn't flown in about four years when i started pilot training okay so when you when you actually did start your your training in the t6 how just I know that the two are uncomparable, but, um, you know, how, how would you compare that to your private training? It, it, for me, it was completely different. The Air Force is very structured. Um, my civilian, um, instruction, again, it was a a family friend who taught me, but you know, when you go to the Air Force, it's showing up at five o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning. It might be 10 o'clock in the morning. It depends on the day. And we were putting in you're there on call formal release. So you're in the flight room for 12 hours. Um, and you're there with 12 or 14 other students and then instructors. Sometimes you're flying, sometimes you're doing simulators. 
Sometimes the group is doing academics, but it's very structured and it's, you know, it's built to take someone who has no flying experience and then 11 months later, 12 months later, spit them out as a person ready to go be a wingman in F-16, to go be a co-pilot in a C-17 and fly around the world. So it's pretty cool to see that. But again, it's, it's completely different than my experience on the civilian side. I think like a syllabus, which now I know is more of a, it's more of a thing um, and flight schools use them, but I didn't know what a syllabus was like, Hey, this ride, we're going to focus on these items and you must be proficient in X, Y, and Z in order to pass this ride was something new and kind of uh, a foreign concept to me. But uh, again, it definitely has its benefits because it's mass production of pilots and we're going to put everyone through the ringer in order to make it happen. What was your transition like from the, uh, from the T6 to the T38? Um, I guess, again, too, it kind of goes, all of it is sensory overload, I think, uh, for most people starting out. Like when you strap on the T6, unless you've flown a high-performance aircraft, it's completely new. The jet fuel, the helmet, the mask, like you can't hear anything. And the same thing kind of happens to the T38, but I think each subsequent plane you go to, it gets a little bit easier. But, you know, when you go to the T38, um, it's a whole, you know, now you got two engines, it's, it's an older plane, different displays, and while you do have simulators, it's just get a period of getting used to everything. I will say, you know, I think the speed is the biggest difference between the T6 and the T38. The T6 is an easy plane to fly. And the T-38 gets to be that point, but it definitely takes a lot more practice. Um, and the T-38 landing it. I mean, you can kill yourself in the T-38 really quickly in a couple of different ways. Uh, the traffic pattern is definitely one of those getting slow. I mean, it's got the tiny little wings. And while it does have afterburners, I mean, it doesn't have a whole lot of thrust. So you can paint yourself into a corner really quickly that's not recoverable. Um, and the one thing I didn't know, I, I Find the T thirty eight is one of my first couple rides out in the the practice area, and I had an eagle instructor, and he's like, "Yeah, just stomp on the rudder." Which one, like in the T thirty eight, there's like never touch the rudders because they're so effective and they become really effective at slow speeds, such as a traffic pattern. So he did this demo where we got slow by slow, like I don't know, one hundred and eighty knots or something like that, <laughs> and just uh, like full rudder deflection, just like one potato uh and then about a half a second later we were inverted um and, and that rudder is just so effective so you know if you down low in the traffic pattern or coming into land where you're used to using your feet uh you could find yourself upside down and kill yourself really quickly i've had had a really good buddy killed initially right before i started pilot training and then i think it's you know we just had a mishap not too long ago in the t38 killed two um you know, the seat now is really reliable. They put new ejection seats into it, but it's an old plane and it's just different than anything we're flying now, but it's a really good trainer. So what was the transition like going from, you know, a, uh, a 50 plus year old airplane in the T-38 over to the Viper? Yeah. So, um, that transition again, every, every time you fly a new plane at that point, I, and in between those i actually did a king air 350 and mc12 deployment so that was learning a new plane then back to the t6 then back to the t38 so i had several transitions um in just a few short years which i think helped then going to the f16 because 
now you kind of know how to study what you need to study, what, what systems you know, are going to be important, or you, know, you at least know who to ask or what questions to ask, um, which helps with the study and the preparation. But the F-16 is, is fast, and while you know, you're like, oh, these, good, these things are going to be night and day, inherently when you're just learning to fly it, you're not so much worried about the systems and the weapons and the radar and things like that. It's like, how do I take off? go point A to point B and then get back. How do I, you know, how does this jet handle? And so it wasn't that uh, wild, I guess, of a, a transition where it starts getting challenging is and start bringing in the radar, the different sensors, the weapons. How are you going to employ this jet? Because F-16 is inherently, I think, a really easy plane to fly. And it's designed that way, you know, so that the pilot can operate the systems and can employ the systems that go into it. So, you know, it, it is just a building effect throughout the B course of like, all right, we're going to do just BFM basic fighter maneuvering, you know, one V one and you're going to do offensive and defensive. Uh, and you're just trying to figure out how to maneuver the aircraft either to stay alive as long as possible or how to threaten long as possible. How do you switch between different weapons? How do you control the fight? to elevating to like two good guys versus one and air combat maneuvering ACM then moving into a larger like hey how we have a four ship of F-16s versus an unknown number of bad guys and we're going to do this long range air to air fight and then now it's long range air to air fight protecting something and eventually move on uh, to whatever base you're going to and it's Shaw it's suppression of enemy air defensive defenses and then defensive counter air are the two mission sets you're doing there, which are really, uh, they have a lot of depth to them, require a lot of studying, uh, and they get missionized. So every scenario is going to be slightly different. So you're going to manipulate what you might do and how you might normally fight for, versus what's written in the book to what this scenario drives. So the initial transition, I think, is, is easy with the exception of it is new. And anything that's new is always a challenge, usually. Um, but with F-16, you're just building every sortie, every ride with complexity, adding new things and new challenges to it. It sounds like the uh, essay is, has to be on overload at first until you get the confidence to you know, keep building and building. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily change. I think the more comfortable you get with something, like once you now know how to run the radar or you know what the plane is doing, um, based on energy state and things like that, like it's something you don't have to think about. It becomes inherent, um, which then allows the iceberg to grow underneath you and fit more penguins on the iceberg. But as far as the essay goes, um, because everything again, just gets more complex, you know, when you're managing a four ship or an eight ship and you have two aircraft that are strikers that are going to hit a target area, and now you have X number of enemy aircraft coming from low altitude, high altitude, and surface air missile systems. There's a lot going on, and like you have to have the SA. Uh, and so the more you're not thinking about the basics, the more SA you're going to have available to figure out what's going on in the fight to be effective. And it's definitely one of those things that it just grows with experience and time. Um, and if you ever listen to like Fight Com, of what's going on in something like a large scale fight. It's chaotic, you know, and usually it's most things like 
We do. It's the debrief where everything gets picked apart and guys get the lessons learned from what's going on because it's complex and it's busy uh, and it's, it's hectic. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, um, you mentioned Shaw and, you know, kind of the role there was, was Shaw your you know, first operational squadron at the base there? It was. Yeah. I, um, being from Georgia, the wife and I really wanted to get back to the Southeast. Um, so Shaw was my first choice and I was lucky to be able to, to come back to Shaw. Although, you know, not a whole lot of people want to go to Shaw, not to knock Sumter, South Carolina, but it's a small town. We really enjoyed it, but most people, especially in my B course, were single. Um, and so they viewed going to the middle of South Carolina as a death sentence as far as what their social life would be. Um, so for us, it worked out, but Shaw was my first operational assignment uh, with the 77th Fighter Squadron. Showed up there, and again, it's just busy. I'm learning uh, what you go through a small, like, I think it's about eight ride program where again, they kind of, you get one offensive, one defensive, one high aspect, basic fighter maneuvering BFM sortie. And then they kind of move you into the mission eye stuff. You're never exposed to seed, at least at that point in the air force, you didn't do seed in the B course and they go back and forth as far as what they're going to do. But you had a lot of stuff to learn in order to be a mission ready wingman. So going through that upgrade and then just getting the reps, I showed up in March, April timeframe of 2014. Um, and then June of 2014, ISIS kind of popped up on the map. So we're slated to deploy. And I knew I was going to be deploying early on. Um, but with ISIS popping on the map, that kind of transformed what our focus was and what we were going to go do. In October, we found ourselves downrange. So again, it went from you know, learning one mission set, which again, seed and DCA there at Shaw to, Hey, now we're going to shift gears and do uh, a bomb dropping close air support type deployment, uh, which was a very short spin up uh, for our squadron. What was, what was that like the first time you got deployed? I mean, I'm sure there's got to be mixed emotions, you know, you're ready to get into the fight, but there's, you know, also, you know, the family at home, you don't want to leave. Yeah. So uh, for me, and I think most people, so I had deployed Afghanistan MC-12, and that was a very interesting deployment doing intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, but this is the deployment that you know you really want, right? Like, I want to go out there and drop bombs and, and do the will of the United States. So there's a lot of excitement leading up to it. Um, again, just because we saw what was happening in the news, what we were preparing for. Um, and so there's a lot of, I guess, pressure to make sure we got it right and prepare. At the home front, um, my wife had just found out she was pregnant. So there's a double-edged sword there. You're like, all right, now I'm going to leave my pregnant wife and go down range. But this is the thing you know, signed up for, and this is what I wanted to do. Um, so it, it was definitely a mixed bag of emotions because you don't, want to miss the birth of your child you don't want to leave your wife uh, home alone while she's pregnant but then again you know i wanted to serve my country and this was definitely going to be the most kinetic way i guess that i was going to serve my country of being a fighter pilot to go out there and do the job that i've always wanted to do sure you mentioned the uh you know your, your role had kind of switched to uh, a casserole. Um, so were there any 
instances that kind of really stand out or, or um, you know, any missions, whether it's a casserole or, um, or anything that really just stands out. Yeah, so it was a really busy deployment uh, for us. I think by the time we finished, uh, we dropped the most precision-guided weapons of any F-16 unit. And wow. Granted, if you go back to Desert Storm, F-16s are dropping like six 500-pounders a piece. They're all unguided. So precision-guided, we dropped the most. And that record just kept being beat on every squadron that showed up there. So it was a really busy time. Um, there was a lot of figuring out kind of what this is. Um, the unit that we were placed there, they were just there kind of as a show of presence in the region for six months. And then their last three or four weeks, that's when things kicked off for them. So we showed up right about the time that uh, Kobani, a town in northern Syria, was a hotbed. Um, and we were spending a lot of time and energy up there. Uh, my first drop was the first sortie. And, you know, there's a lot of it's at night. Uh, you're trying to figure out which way's up, where everything is. Again, build your essay. Um, and it was so different than anything I'd ever heard or had prepared for. And literally, they divided the city up into grids. And there's one grid that was green, meaning that if you see anything in this one green sector, you have to get clearance to drop. Anything else that is a uh, man, a vehicle, anything that looks military in nature, you can just drop a weapon on it. Like there's no talking to a JTAC on the ground or anything like that. So it was pretty wild because ISIS literally owned that town and everyone in that town was ISIS. Uh, so that was different to begin with. But as like the, the deployment uh, evolved, obviously we're starting to turn the tides against ISIS and it, it, it took a long time to do. Um, but in that, you know, I don't think it was uncommon. I think I dropped weapons danger close, like 36 meters from friendlies. Um, and, you know, and I was not the closest of that drop by any means. So guys were, you know, the YPG, the Peshmerga, uh, the Kurd fighters that we were supporting out there. And they were in the fight for their lives. Um, and, you know, when you kind of take a step back and you think about like, all right, like for me, I'm just, getting these coordinates or I'm using the targeting pod to generate coordinates based off what we're getting from you know, the guys on the ground. And, uh, it's pretty wild when you think about, you know, 90 feet away and you got two 500 pound weapons going off and they're just, they're going building to building street to street, just clearing out ISIS fighters. And this is their everyday life. So it really puts things in perspective as far as things go. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a really, there was, it was a really busy deployment. There definitely was some boredom in there for sure. But um, overall, it was, it was pretty sporty. Um, not, not sporty is not the right term, but it, it was busy and uh, it was rewarding all in that too. Mm -hmm. Did you have any close calls during that time? Uh, no, like we, we um, <laughs> no, I, I personally, I wouldn't call them close calls. There were, there were a couple times where, we de we definitely had guys in the squadron who got shot at and listened to their HUD tapes afterwards. It's kind of funny because we do all this training for, you know, when you're getting shot at and what you're doing and their radio comm. I think the funniest one I heard was, Hey one, I think you're getting shot at like, <laughs> really? Oh yeah. I, yeah. I'm getting shot at. I guess I should start moving the jet, you know? And so <laughs> it's just kind of like, it's humorous when you hear that kind of stuff. Um, I definitely had a couple like emergencies uh, where, 
And again, we're up in, in northern Syria. And this is kind of good. I think it's a general aviation takeaway. This story is uh, up in northern Syria. At that point, we're about four months into it. And it's daytime, so I can see the ground, which is definitely nice. And it's a good weather day. Um, we were working, and there they had a bunch of ISIS fighters that were um, shooting and lobbing mortars into a friendly position. So we found it, and we're going to drop in bombs uh, on it. Well, uh, my flight lead and I spun out, and on the run-in, I had a generator. My main generator dropped offline, and I was doing a, a podcast the other day, and I, I, all my emergencies, knock on wood, up to the point of my career, my engine's always running. So using my reaction is just one of annoyance, right, when something happens. Um, I'm like, ah, I know, boo. I know what this is going to do now. Like one, I'm not going to be able to drop any weapons. And two, I'm going to have to activate the emergency power unit, the EPU, which fires off. And then it's going to be a whole issue of like dealing with oxygen and things like that when I get on the ground and having to see the flight dock. So that's what goes to my mind initially when this happens, right? Probably not the, uh, I guess what should be the first thing, but that's what, what it is nonetheless. Um, so I have this happen. Uh, and then the fight really kicks up at, at that point. Well, I don't want to leave. Uh, I want to be a s- supporting fighter as much as I can. Although at this point, I'm, again, I'm kind of like a supersonic Piper Cub with not a whole lot of systems. But it's safe to fly. So I hang out as long as I can. And it gets to the point where I have to go to the tanker because I was already a little bit low on gas. Well, now I'm like, all right, I need to go find the tanker. Flight lead can't leave because these guys need support. Uh, so I'm like, I'm out. And I just I turn east uh, towards Iraq where our tanker was. Um, and you just kind of use ground references at that point. Like I was looking outside and you can, the Turkish uh, Syrian border was well-defined. Like anything in Syria along the border, there was just like nothing, small shanty towns. And on the Tur- Turkish side, usually big developments. So you just kind of parallel the border. And again, luckily it was a clear weather day because I have no radar. I have no HUD. Um, I just drove for about 12 minutes, which I knew was going to be the tanker track. And again, it comes from being there, right? But it, again, just building my essay of just what the normal norm is and just got onto the, found the tanker and got on the tanker, got gas. And I just hung out with the tanker until uh, my flight lead showed back up. And then we drove back um, to where we were, we were staging out of, which was about a two hour drive. When we got back, it was a sandstorm. So now I have no HUD. You definitely get spoiled having a HUD. Um, and so like the landing became the most, challenging part i think at that point we're just like ah, i'm just so irritated because i have no hud i have all my bombs and i have a bunch of extra gas because we're carrying it for alternate uh, in case we can't get in with the sandstorm there so that's probably like my closest call i definitely didn't have uh wings blowing up or anything crazy like that but uh it was it was an interesting deployment for sure you guys have you know backup systems for for example like a you know airspeed indicator just in case the HUD goes out, I'm assuming, right? We do. We have the round dials, what we call them. But, um, and that's what, you know, flying off of. Like, that, that all works in worst case scenario. And I think actually in that case, what we did is a formation approach, uh, which is easier just to have fly off your wingman who has the HUD, is going to set all the speeds. Um, and then right when you get down to about 300 feet, you just hold what you've been doing more or less because you know where your throttle setting is. And then you just revert back to a normal landing without a HUD. Um, and then we have an AOA tape, which is tougher to bring in the cross check just because it's lower. But 
in F-16 using AOA to land, so angle of attack, and arbitrary units for the landing between 11 and 15 degrees. So trying to touch down at 11 degree, 11, between 11 and 13 degrees uh, for that. What was, uh, what was your longest sortie uh, when you were over there? I think 8.1 was my longest sortie, and I definitely didn't win the longest sortie uh, contest, but um, usually you go out for a four-hour vulnerability period. We call four-hour vol period, and that's where you're tasked to support a unit for four hours, but you got to transit to and from, which could be two and a half hours. It could be 30 minutes. It just depends on where you're going in Iraq or Syria. Um, and sometimes, I would say, again, it kind of just depends on what what was going on you would get extended so on that day we got extended twice uh to support six hours of a vol but you know you're doing that and you're working and it's busy and it usually goes by pretty quick it's the sorties that are not not busy that are, they're not going to get extended and they're going to be you know a normal i would say i put air quotes a normal six hour sortie the challenge of the f-16 i think is you go out and you do the mission you come back no bombs uh, is when you get out of the jet, like not fall down the ladder because your legs don't work. If you think about it too, we would step uh, like an hour and a half prior. We would start an hour prior to takeoff. So you're sitting in the jet for an hour wow. prior to even taking off. And then when it comes to shutting down, by the time you land, shut down and got pushed back into the parking spot, like that's another 30 minutes or so. Uh, so you're sitting there for a really long time. Wow. I am kind of curious. How many times were you deployed? I I did two deployments. I did one in the MC-12 and I did one uh, in the F-16. I'm kind of a weird anomaly in that, you know, I spent about five and a half years at Shaw, but the last two and a half was demo. Like I was slated to leave Shaw and head out to Holloman Air Force Base to be a B course instructor about the time I got hired to be the demo pilot, which changed everything. So doing the demo thing took me out of all the tactical, uh, tacticalness, if you will, uh, at Shaw. And not saying going to the B course to teach there, you're not you're usually not going to deploy out of there. If you deploy out of there, it's usually to go support some random tasking, which might be to train some country using a targeting pod or something like that. Well, this kind of seems like a perfect transition time. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Viper demo. When did that all become possible? Um, so I always say right time, right place with the right qualifications. So I was fortunate to find myself in that spot in 2016. I honestly hadn't considered it. You know, the demo was flying around Shaw. The demo came back while we were deployed. And then, you know, when the demo was practicing at Shaw and Rocket Baker was the the guy who brought it back to Shaw, uh, everything shuts down. And so it might be while you're stepping out to the jet and he's, raging around the, the the airspace there definitely saw it but i never considered it being a thing shaw had an air show in 2016 and i ended up being a narrator for our air power demo um had a buddy on the thunderbirds who was there and that weekend was kind of the i guess put the bug in me to maybe even think about uh doing something with air shows and again never thought about it before we had that air show got kind of involved for just a brief couple of days there. And then two weeks later, they sent out a message saying, hey, if you're interested in applying to be the next demo pilot, here are the requirements. You need to put in a resume, an application, 
let your leadership know, and here's the timeline for it, which was just a couple months. So again, had that not all happened in that sequence, I probably would have never even considered doing it. But I talked to my wife a good bit about it. We thought it might be something worth pursuing. Um, so again, very fortunate that all that happened and that I was you know, at Shaw when it called and you know, obviously I thought I had enough of the qualifications needed to go out there and do it. So threw my name in the hat and then the rest is history. How, um, how did you find out or when did you find out that, that it was going to happen? So the application I think was due in May. Um, and it wasn't until it was the very end of July that I found out. I was actually, you have to go, you have to tell your, hey, squadron commander, I think I want to do this. And then put in all the, the resume and the application, like I mentioned, that goes to operations group commander. And he owned three, three fighter squadrons there at Shaw. He did an interview with me and the other applicants. Uh, and then after that, it was up to the wing commander to decide who was going to be the uh, next demo pilot. Um, so I was actually working for the wing and flight safety at that point, And the wing commander called me down to his office to do an interview. And I didn't know it at the time, but he had already made up his mind. He basically took the recommendation of the ops group commander and, and said, he started alluding to it in the, in the interview with me. He's like, you know, when you're my demo pilot, when you're this, when you're this, and just going <laughs> through different scenarios. So I was like, are you saying this because I'm, I'm hired or what? And at the end of the interview, he's like, hey, congratulations, you're my next demo pilot. Um, but again, it was about a two-month process as far as going through the interviews, sitting around and waiting just to be able to go talk to the different level of bosses and things like that. Do you know roughly how many applicants are put in You know, every time there's, it's, the position's up? It varies. And so obviously this last round when uh, we were finding my replacement, I think there were four applicants that, that applied. And again, Shaw's kind of unique, or the F-16 community is unique. We don't take applicants outside of Shaw, even though there's only one demo team. The F-22, they call it Raptor Nation. Well, the reason they're Raptor Nation is because they borrow jets from all of the F-22 squadrons versus the F-16 demo. There are three jets, and they're assigned there. Kind of same A-10. Uh, so the F-22 will put out a all-call to any F-22 pilot that's qualified to apply and then they get vetted at their local base and anyone who makes it past that will then migrate their way eventually to Langley for further interviews uh, for them to select who it's going to be. And so you go to different air shows and you'll see maybe, maybe a first fighter wing or a Tyndall or you know something like that on the 22. So that makes sense. Yeah, it's, and that's when the, the demo schedule gets built. That's kind of the, the toughest part, right? Um, because they'll build the F-22 schedule first. They say, hey, we want to support these air shows. And then they go to all the F-22 units and say, hey, you know, Hickam, can you support the March Air Force Base show in April? And they'll say yes, right? So then that takes anyone else off the table to support that. Or if F-22 can't be supported by any unit around there, then, you know, they'll F-16, A-10, and now the F-35 will come into the mix. We'll go support those. So, um, again, it's expensive plane, and we don't have that many of them. So they kind of drive the fight as far as the initial schedule build for all the demo teams. Mm-hmm. You obviously already knew how to fly the jet. What was the what was the training like 
Was it just learning the profile, perfecting the profile? Um, talk a little bit about that. So I think 99.9% of uh, F-16 pilots can go out there and fly the demo profile. But it's a 19-ride upgrade program. Granted, the rides are only about 15 minutes long. But it, for me, it was definitely challenging. I think for most, it's challenging. You're doing something different in the F-16 that you've never done before. It's not normal to fly around at 500 feet and do a 360-degree 9G turn. Like, that's just not something you do in the F-16. So you have to learn the sequence and then the techniques, the procedures and the techniques for how to fly the profile. It just takes reps to be able to do that. It is, um, you know, once you get, yeah, once you obviously get comfortable, it's just like doing anything else. It's like driving to work with a caveat of being, I think every demo ride i burned somewhere between 300 and 600 calories you know all the repositions are 9g plus um so you're working the entire time so you have to be on your game rest hydration nutrition all that is a factor because you definitely can put yourself to sleep really quickly and then at that altitude there is no chance to recover so the the upgrade is definitely very serious and we're we are carving through each maneuver in minutia to make sure you know we're following what is set inside the regulations and then doing it safely safety is like the of the utmost importance you guys obviously have been to a lot of air shows and can attest like you probably now recognize like oh that's weird he stopped that maneuver but like the vast majority of people have no clue they're like oh it's just a loud plane flying around so the thing you hammer home is in the end like nothing is worth like jeopardizing safety if you're just flying around making noise, 90% of the people at the air show are going to be happy and excited. Um, so you have to kind of break through the barrier of like, I want, I want perfection and I want to make every show better than the last. But in the end, safety is paramount. So if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to knock it off and not do that maneuver. So you got to build that habit because, uh, you know, I definitely saw it uh, at, on occasion where uh, I'm just going to push through this. It's like, you're probably going to be the only person in the world that knows that you busted this airspeed or this altitude. And it's just a really dangerous mentality to get into. Kind of goes back to the Bob Hoover story about, you know, when he flew his last show, he said, you know, I did something in the, in the Mustang that I've never done before. And there's nobody on the ground that, that knew that that was happening, but I knew it. And that was when I knew it was time to hang it up. So. Yeah, absolutely. Cause you get comfortable, right? Anything you do, I think I flew the demo profile well over 300 times. So obviously comfort was there, but I always told myself and I always brief safety observers, you know, complacency is the highest threat now. I'm so comfortable with this. I'm going to let my guard down at some point and that's when it's going to bite you. And it goes to, like, I'll tell a story back, this is back to the B course. Um, anytime you fly at night, like I, I've been, I've done a lot of night flying. You're like, ah, I'm comfortable doing this. And that's when you have to slap yourself. Uh, I had a buddy in the B course who tried to rejoin on a cell phone tower at night. And there are just different visual illusions that happen at night. Like you don't have the ability to see things as well as you do because it's dark. It's obvious. <laughs> but now throw in the mix of flying a supersonic capable jet with NVGs where, you know, you don't have depth perception through it. And it's just a little circle. Like things get challenging and, and things get different. So anytime you get comfortable with something, I think that's when you really 
probably no matter what you're doing, you kind of need to like slap yourself or take a step back and realize, you know, Hey, like I might mess this up. I could, these, like my complacency is the highest threat here. Is part of the 19 training hops uh, on the demo profile. Is part of that just getting used to flying a completely slick jet? Um, I think there are definitely differences. And obviously, obviously there are differences in flying a slick jet. You know, you're going from a normal, you know, training or, I mean, you know, combat load. We were flying 42,000 pound jets around. Much different than starting out weighing, you know, just over 28,000 pounds and having 30,000 pounds of thrust. Um, so the, a clean Viper, one thing is, like once it gets going fast, like it doesn't want to slow down. So um, I know there have been a previous demo pilot who the, the speed limit for us is 0.94 Mach. Well, like on a cold day in a block 50, like getting 0.94 in mill power is easy, let alone when you're going in, once you're in afterburner, I think that's like the biggest thing is like just making sure that you don't over G, or over speed the jet because it's so easy to do. Um, and then you don't really have a whole lot of options to slow down. Like you do have the speed brakes, but they're not going to do much for you. You can climb. That's probably gonna be about your best thing or try and G off the airspeed. But then you're going so fast too. Like don't put yourself to sleep doing it. And I think the highest G maneuver uh, I did was always after the second high speed pass because you're trying to get back around to show center as fast as possible and you're 600 plus knots. So if you get fast, like, Again, that jet's just going to keep going fast. That's probably the biggest difference in learning it. But it really, the learning is the profile and doing these maneuvers and stringing them together and being inside the, the airspeed window, the altitude window for all of them. It's just different. As far as putting that all together on the ground for the crowd to see, I you know I mentioned it in my intro, but you have to th- to this day the best. Um, uh, narration and and audio production along with your show that there was out there i was kind of curious what what goes into you know the actual production of the show that's seen from the ground well um i can only speak to my time on the demo team but uh, what i found you know i don't always i do not have all the answers right um but the one thing is really fortunate about being the demo team commander is you know i had seven or eight maintainers that were assigned to the team. And honestly, those are some of the best dudes I've ever worked with. Um, and I found like letting them make a lot of the decisions, uh, would work out really well. So the only time I ever said no to a certain song was in, uh, Rio Negro, Colombia, and someone played Justin Bieber. I was like, negative. (laughs) This is the one time I'll step in, but I wanted them to have ownership. Um, so uh, Master Sergeant uh, Rich Hall, who's now a lieutenant, he commissioned. And then uh, Master Sergeant Chris Snyder, uh, Cam Glowacki, Stephen Mullins, all these guys uh, who were on the team, they had a lot of great ideas to make the show better. Chris and Rich both really ran with the narration as far as just kind of breaking the norm. And I actually found a YouTube video of the demo back in the early 90s. And it's no kidding, the exact same narration. So we changed it up a little bit simple stuff like it was a three minute intro and i was like man i love this but i'm falling asleep so we cut it to uh, just under a minute and a half for starting the show again just trying to streamline things the music selection things like that 
you know, the guys are on the ground. They're watching it. They're narrating it. I'm just trying to rip the wings off. Uh, so they kind of get a better feel of what the crowd's doing and what things are doing like that. Chris and Cam actually did a thing at Oshkosh where they did this dual narration piece. They completely thought of it on their own, uh, and they ran with it. And that kind of became the standard from that point forward, doing two narrators with the Viper demo team. And it allows those guys to kind of banter back and forth. It changes up the voice, and I think it's kind of a cool aspect. But again, knowing that I'm not the guy with all the answers, I'm just trying to break the plane uh, and just relying on your team to, hey, this is where we want to go. This is my desire to like where I want to see the team at the end of the season and letting them have the creative uh, latitude to go out there and try different things. And some things work, some things didn't work. And, you know, we just reassess c- continually as far as what it was going to be. I.e. Justin Bieber did not work. <laughs> I think one thing that, you know, really impressed me and impressed a lot of people was not just your, but but your team's uh, use of social media to share what you guys were doing, how you were doing it, um, you know, just to help the general public understand what all goes into what you do. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit, kind of where that came from and, and kind of, you know, your ideas on using social media for, for outreach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I took over, I only knew about Facebook. And I said, I, I want our social media presence to grow. I, I want to grow our Facebook page. Um, and so for the 2018 season, that was kind of the focus, um, developing videos, pictures, engagement, things like that. Because in my mind, you know, the crowd is the, the demographics are different at air shows. The interest is different at air shows than it was when I went through, when I was growing up or when you were growing up or, you know, 40 years ago, like people went and they watched the planes fly and, or enamored by it. Now, capturing people's attention for more than 30 to 60 seconds is a challenge. So I viewed social media as a way to amplify our, the awareness of the Air Force, utilize this amazing asset that we have available to us, the demo team, and broaden our reach. Pump up the show kind of beforehand, you know, let people know we're there, which might get more people out there who weren't necessarily going to go to the show. And then capitalize on all the content that we generated throughout that weekend that we could expand our reach as a demo team, you know, into other avenues. Um, I'll be honest, we had some great public affairs members on our team, but we also had some change out. And with the change out, like there's always a learning curve and things like that. We had some that just weren't necessarily interested in what we were doing and didn't, I'll be honest, they didn't see the value. They're like, well, one air shows just like every other show, like, yep, that's, that's 100% accurate. However, it's in a different part of the country. These people have spent the last year or two years preparing for it. And every time you go out there, and that's one thing I had to tell myself, you know, I've done this demo 200 times at this point, right? Or whatever it is. But for some people, this is the first time they've ever seen it. And this is going to be the only time that they'll ever see it and potentially ever meet someone who's in the military. So you have to be on your, you cannot have an off day, right? Because you miss the opportunity to talk to that one kid that could spoil his whole impression of the Air Force or the military in general. So I had some frustrations. It initially took off, I think, fairly well in the 2018 season, and then just kind of fizzled out. Um, and then Instagram, I kind of like stumbled upon that and felt that was a way to potentially increase our reach. So I kind of pushed that uh, a little bit. But again, every time I flew, I flew with like three or four GoPros. I'm like, where's this GoPro footage going? 
we're not doing anything with this GoPro footage. I want to start doing stuff with this GoPro footage. It's kind of like leading a horse to water and refuse to drink. Well, we didn't do anything with the GoPro footage. So I finally said, and this was in the 2019, sorry, 20, I'm confusing my years, two and a half years. So 20, that was 2017 with Facebook, 2018, my second season, sorry. It all blurs together at this point. Um, I just said, you know what? Hey, I'm going to try this. And it was just taking raw footage that I thought was cool and throwing it up on uh, Instagram, which kind of took off. And I think um, the Air Force saw the value in it. The other demo team saw the value in it and it, and it grew. And I also wanted to break the mold, right? Like of competition, right? There is like competition that makes us better. And then there's competition where like, well, if I help you out, that's going to be less for me. So I'm not going to help you out. And I think that's the wrong mentality to have. Um, so I wanted to incorporate other performers, you know, in my social media and vice versa. Because in the end, the rising tides lift all ships. By integrating and cross-connecting and cross-pollinating, we're all stronger for it. And we're trying to grow the air show industry and make the air show industry better. So I think it, it definitely has, I don't know, I'm you guys have a better perspective on me to me i look at i was just doing my job i hope that it has had a positive impact i do get feedback from you know kids who see the videos and things like that they didn't think they could be pilots or that they now have the motivation and actually i met one the other day who had a medical issue he's like all i did was watch your instagram and now he's flying for a regional airline he can't fly in the air force but he's like that's what got me through the hours in the hospital bed which is really it's humbling to hear that and that's what you hope um, because again, we're just trying to one spread the message for the Air Force because I think it's a pretty good career path to go after. You know, inspire people to go pursue some kind of passion out there and have some kind of drive. And it's really funny that you know it all comes down to Instagram or social media that kind of has this impact. But the world's changing. I'm figuring that out. Indeed, it is, and I think that's where you know where a lot of us have come together and you know with a common love of aviation and and um, air shows and photography and all those things you know it's it's really thanks to social media i think without it you know you don't realize the the amount of people that you know share that common love with you whatever it is yeah absolutely and i i've shared your guys' stuff as well and uh and that's the thing too like it's this content is there and i think it needs to be out there in the not that it's not out in the public domain. It's out in the public domain, but the broader reach, the more people we can reach with it, you just never know what kind of impact or what kind of you know, message that's going to strike with someone. So getting it out there, I think, is the most important part. And obviously, you have to have quality. Uh, is, is a big factor. Like if you're just sharing a bunch of stuff that's, that's worthless and no bueno, but sharing quality stuff and getting it out there can have a big, big impact. Yeah, there's definitely a, a positive impact when it comes to social media. I mean, I, I go back to, I think you and I linked up on Instagram uh, before Rhode Island a couple of years ago, and that's how we first met doing the uh, a brief interview next to the hot ramp. And it's, it's a good community, especially the aviation community, and the impact that social media can have can be such a tremendous impact. Uh, just going off of even your you know, regional guy, that's incredible. Yeah, and so that's, I think it. I think it's definitely an important piece of it, and I think there is a lot of value in it. Slowly, you know, the Air Force is catching on to that that there's a lot of value in it, and kind of breaking some of the traditional molds of like, you know, we talk demo teams. Like, I'm gonna go show up. I'm gonna hand out a picture. 
I'm going to wave and that's it. Like there's so much more you can do now just based on the way technology has changed. Yeah, I know at Chino, uh, I stopped by over at your guys' booth over there and, you know, just through, through social media and what you had shared and following your crew, um, you know, I felt like I knew those guys when I went over and talked to them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, you're connecting with people. And I think all of us kind of want, all of us kind of want that, right? And you know, we have interest in various, you know, various different fields or whatever it might be. But, you know, I, I do woodworking on the side. So, like, I follow a lot of woodworkers and things like that. Um, and, you know, when you see that on social media, it kind of take it knocks away the mystique, I would say, to a certain extent. You know, you learn a little bit more about that person, what they do. So then we actually meet them in person. Yeah, it's just another human being. Like it's a normal human being. And that's, I think, the piece too, or, you know, doing demo, like, you know, people are always like, ah, oh, it's amazing what you do and stuff like that. Like I, I don't, I think any, again, any F-16 pilot could do it. The, the amazing piece is the amount of work the team puts in in order to make that happen because the guys are humping it. And everyone is just a normal dude or dudette trying to do their their best at their job and they love you know they're passionate about it and most people like sharing what they're passionate about i know one of the one of the first interactions that i had with you on instagram had to do with a story that that you shared and um if i remember right it was just a photo of at the time to me you know looked like metal straws that were laying in a pile on a table um you talked about you know your your goal was to try to break the jet each time um how many static wicks did you come away with? You know, I was actually uh, unpacking the office the other day and I have like two like massive Ziploc bags of them. I should count them or like take pictures <laughs> share on social media. It's, it's a hefty weight of static wicks. I'll be paying, that, paying for that in you know, five years with my back, but at least I'll have like a bunch of drink stirs, I yeah. guess. You trained Toro well because he ripped off a panel at uh, Thunder Over Michigan this past year. Yeah, I, I was I was texting with him. I was like, "Solid work, man!" Uh, just really <laughs> breaking the jet. I was I think I have a I have a smattering of F sixteen parts that you know they don't they don't repair. It's like, hey, do you want this part? And I'm like, oh, I broke that. Cool. Yeah, I'll take that. I'm gonna build my. <laughs> the joke in the team was, I'm just gonna build an F sixteen of just broken parts. I need a motor. <laughs> so do you have any favorite moments, places you went, anything like that that uh, you want to share from your time with the team? And it is really tough to narrow it down because there were a lot of just awesome shows and each one of them was like slightly different traveling around. Um, you know, it was, for me, it's always like the people. Um, and I was really fortunate. You know, I had two amazing years on the demo team, the, my 0.5 year, the, the last, the last one there, um, I didn't. I wasn't involved in any of the hiring process for that because I was kind of backing away from it. And then when I stepped back in, you know, all all those dudes who had gotten hired, again, just continuing to to set the bar high and amazing dudes. Um, and I, I every show I went to, you know, just kind of being with the team and working through different problems was was the most fun for me. Again, the locations were amazing. I'll be honest, like raging around downtown Miami. At 300 feet, it's pretty awesome. That's that's tough to beat. Same with San Francisco, but um, yeah, it really comes down to the people, the the other performers, the the volunteers, the people who put on air shows. I have a lot of friends that I stay 
connected to to this day. Uh, who knows, you know, if I'll get back into the air show world or not. But again, it, the air show community is a family, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. You got to do a number of celebrity flights, correct? Let's see. Uh, I I did. I, in my time, I did. Uh, I think I counted it before I left. It was just under eighty, call it seventy-seven, uh, fam flights. So familiarization flights, mostly for the maintainers on the team, uh, and a few other like pilots who wanted to go through the demo profile. But uh, Elizabeth Banks, um, actress Connor Daly from uh, the IndyCar series. Um, I know I'm forgetting some. Craig Melvin from NBC, Michael Hopper from Vice News, were kind of some that pop off from the top of my my uh, head here, but. It was cool being able to share those experiences with them. I really enjoyed being able to fly the guys on the team who, who made it all happen. For the most part, they really enjoyed it. I took a few of their souls, like Louie. I, I know <laughs> if people were on Instagram, they always saw the post about Louie. Poor Louie. Like, he was a champion. He went year after year, but every year his soul was claimed at some point <laughs> during the profile, and he was just dead to the world. I think the first year he slept for like, well, he came back and slept for like two hours in the office. We're like, just go home and then slept for like another 14 hours when he got home. <laughs> Soul crushing. Well, you said that G's always hurt when you're pulling nine, so. Yeah, it's not for the light of heart. And I think you definitely get used to it, but then you also don't. It's like, eh, just everything hurts except for my ears when you're pulling nine G's, I think. <laughs> well, maybe this is a good time for us to, you know, kind of transition to you know what you're doing now and uh like all things in life change is definitely inevitable so you know what waded into your decision to you know kind of walk away from the air force um did you have a final flight and talk about what you're doing now yeah so like everything in life you have to say you used to um and that point is going to come at a predetermined point it might come unexpectedly you just never know for me, um, leaving, I'm actually in the reserves now doing some recruiting stuff, so I'm not completely gone, but I decided to hang it up uh, as far as flying goes. I absolutely, there are some things I miss about the F-16 I'll always cherish, but for me, I viewed it as I went out on a high note and I look back on it fondly, not something that they had to, you know, kick me out the door. I was ready and I was going out on my own terms, which for me is, is where I wanted to be in life. Um, it's a whole nother podcast probably in itself of like how I got to that decision and, and what made me decide to, to hang it up. But you know, when it comes down to it, family for me is the most important thing. The Air Force, you're going to sacrifice. And if I had to go do it over again, I absolutely would go do it over again because it afforded me some tremendous opportunities. But in the end, I looked at what my next eight years was going to look like. And it was probably going to be five or six moves. Um, and the, decent potential that I would be out of the jet for either a short period of time or extended period of time doing a staff job. And we have a fighter pilot shortage, especially in my year group. So who knows? I probably could have stayed in the jet the entire time. But for me, it definitely would come with a lot of sacrifice. Um, I wanted to keep flying. So that's when I started looking at different things. I'm now uh, flying for FedEx and just wrapped up my training with them on the triple seven. So, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but you know, my next trip, I'm leaving from Memphis and flying all the way uh, to Japan with several stops and back. 
so it's something completely different than flying the F-16. It's a different challenge. It's a different temperament. It's a different tempo. And for me, that, that is kind of exciting because I do have a passion about aviation. So doing different things and growing as an aviator is important to me. And it's a new challenge. It's something different. The avionics and what the 777 can do versus the F-16 is vastly different. It can't shoot missiles or drop bombs, but like just the navigation piece of it um, is entirely different than what I've, I've done. And I had to learn a whole, like there's a lot that goes into learning just how to navigate and use the systems that are available to you. Do you doing, do any flying for enjoyment? Uh, so I have not yet since I've gotten out of the Air Force, but that is the plan is to get back involved in GA. And then uh, I, th- I, I do want to get back involved in air shows. So if I can find the, the right act, which I'm talking to uh, someone right now, which I think will work out, and uh, I can get back maybe flying something a little fast. I could pull a few Gs. It would be entertaining, uh, and I would enjoy it because, again, you know, aviation is part of my life. I want to keep my, my wife loves it. My son loves it. I want to keep him involved in and around it uh, because I think it's, a, it's just a good, it's a good community. It's a, obviously, it's a good profession. There's so many different things you can do inside the aviation community. Um, so exposing to him, I think, exposing that to him, I think is important. And then we'll see where, see where that le- ends up, I guess. Well, that's awesome. Um, Ryan and I can both both speak to it but uh we both love general aviation and and um just kind of part of our lives as well so glad to hear that uh it's not going to be a departure from that for sure yeah it's just this is a little we're in the i'm in the transition period so it um it's one of those things it's fun and i I definitely miss it so i look forward now to having the bandwidth and the free time which is you know afforded by having a different style career that i can get back involved in in ga well, speaking of free time, uh, you recently started a podcast. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, if you asked me a year ago, I couldn't spell podcast. Kind of like I didn't know anything about Instagram before I started doing that. Uh, the hope is, you know, I've met a lot of really incredible people over the years that have some amazing stories, and these stories don't get told. And it's simple things that I think most guys who fly take for most guys and gals, they take for granted. What is an average sortie to them um, never gets told. And not, I'm not necessarily just focused on aviation, trying to bring people from all walks of life, whether it be a doctor, a Marine, everyone has some kind of story to tell, which has value to not only inspire other people to pursue professions, to learn from their mistakes. And that's the goal is to kind of bring to another another medium to funnel these life experiences out there to the public. And I know like I found, you know, the podcasts I listen to, like once you find one in that genre that you really like, now you're just like constantly searching for more and more because there's just not enough content out there, at least I don't think. So Jello, the fighter pilot podcast, he helped me out getting things started. And again, it kind of goes back to that competition thing I started about like, well, most people are like, oh well that's you're competing for the same audience. And he and I both you know, talked about it. It's, now it's like the, the rising tides lift all ships, right? I've listened to his podcast. Hopefully his listeners listen to mine and vice versa. Because again, there's like an insatiable appetite out there. If you are interested in 
fighters and I'm doing something and I have a different voice than he does and doing something slightly different than he's doing. Um, it kind of snowballs. Uh, I think from there, Matt Jolly over at Warbird Radio is another one there. He hosts on his site. There's about 15 different podcasts. And it's everything from like RC planes to women in aviation to uh, three air show announcers, which is you know, the show center, the, the air, the air show podcast, which is one of my favorite. And it's just three air show announcers. And it's just something different. But if you have an interest in that, uh, you can't find enough of this content. So I was like, I'll give it a stab and see what we'll do. So the first episode of the afterburn is out. It is going to evolve for sure. And I'm every, I've recorded a couple, so I have them that I'll release out here. But every time I record one, I learn something new. Um, and I'm not a broadcaster. I'm not, you know, a news anchor or anything like that. I'm just a simple former fighter pilot who's trying to figure, figure out the podcast space. So, um, yeah, we'll kind of see where it goes. Hopefully it helps people out. That's kind of the goal in the end is um, let other people know that, you know, they might have a struggle or a speed bump or something they're, they're dealing with, but, you know, they're not the first to do it and they won't be the last to have to deal with the problem. I can speak for myself at least. And, you know, as a, as an aviation podcast consumer and, and uh, saying I enjoyed the heck out of the first episode and, and look forward to what's coming down the road for you. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. I got, um, again, I've kind of recorded a few that are being edited right now and the next one will come out in a week. Um, but you know, even simple stuff where I'm interviewing buddies and I, they say something that I had no clue they either went through or had to deal with. Um, you know, for me, it's like, oh, wow. And I had, I, I had no idea, but it's like a little thing I take away and, and, and chalk away as a lesson learned or whatever it might be. So hopefully people like it. Hopefully they keep subscribing and uh, coming back. I'll let me know to keep doing it. Otherwise, you know, a year from now, I'm like, ah, no one listens to my podcast. So <laughs> adios. I don't think that'll be the case. On a much more somber note, a week ago, the airshow community endured a tragedy. Members of the Twin Tigers aerobatic team, pilot Mark Novoshevsky and Nathan Sorensen, son of pilot Mark Sorensen, lost their lives in an aviation accident. Our hearts and prayers go out to the grieving families. Now, Rain, you performed some shows with the Twin Tigers team. Did you know Mark or Nathan? So I knew Mark, and I saw Nathan uh, around at a couple of the air shows I was at. Um, you know, speaking of Mark, just a super individual, like always positive, always energetic. Um, and I think the last show, actually, I saw them at Warner Robins this past uh, fall when I was just down there as a spectator hanging out. But the last show I did with them, I think it was Cleveland in 2018. Um, yeah, it's just overall, I could, I can't imagine uh, what the Sorensons are going through right now, uh, what little Mark, what their family's going through. Because no matter what, like anytime something like this happens, like it, it obviously is painful. And, you know, it, it stings deep, especially when you evolve, um, you know, a teenager in this. I think, you know, at least a lot of stuff I go through is both of them had, you know, so much runway out in front of them still in life. Um, and to see it, you know, kind of clip short is, is painful. It hits home because knowing them and then, you know, you start doing some self-reflection of like where I am in life, my family, and you kind of like, well, you know, put yourself in their shoes. Like I, again, I just can't imagine, uh, what they're, what they're going through. You know, my heart goes out to them, my prayers go out to them. Um, 
because it's, it's tragic. It is just tragic. And that's about as eloquent as I can get with that. Yeah. Such a unique community. The aviation community is, and you know, I can speak for all the full desk. I mean, if there's anything that we can do to help, uh, we'll be there. Yeah. I know there, uh, that is the, the piece of it. You know, it, it is a family. It's a community. Um, that comes together and rallies around, you know, those that, that are hurting. I just saw last night, you know, both Mark and Mark yeah, from the Twin Tigers were, were, were South, you know, Southwest pilots. Uh, little Mark was based out of Orlando. So, and Mark Sorensen up here in Atlanta, you know, they lit the tower uh, in honor of Mark and Nathan last night. Um, I know there's just been an outpouring of support from, you know, their friends and family and the air show community in general. Several of them are getting together today to kind of help out. I'm going to head down there uh, here shortly because it's not too far from my home. Um, again, it's just, it's tough. There's no, there's no easy way to, to get through this. There's no way to, you know, I guess make it, make it better. It's usually the proverbial, it, it takes time and there's always going to be a void and there's always going to be a gap and there's always going to be pain that's associated with it. And I think, you know, I've lost a lot of buddies over the years in the air force and, you know, for me, the way. Yeah, I always dealt with it was was getting back to to doing the job, which is a way to honor their their legacy. Um, you know, because if yeah, if something ever happened to me, you know, I'd want people to keep marching forward and keep going out and doing the mission and doing doing the good work in the aviation community. It's just it's painful. There's just there's no way around it. Well, that was very well said, and you know, just to echo everything both of you said, thoughts and prayers to the the airshow family because um, nobody wants to lose a friend and a son. I just don't think there's a whole lot more we can say about that. So, Rain, we cannot thank you enough for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for the amazing displays you put on as your time at the as the Viper demo pilot. Thank you for being a good dude. Thank you for your time that you put in with the fans and the media, and most importantly, thank you for your years of service to our country. To all of our listeners, go check out the Afterburn podcast. You're going to love it. Do you want to tell the listeners where they can find you and your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Wanna, well, thanks for having me on here. But if people are interested in uh, checking out the Afterburn, uh, iTunes, Spotify, it's not up on iHeartRadio just yet. Still waiting on their verification, but any day now. I'm, holding, I'm crossing my fingers. Um, as well as the Podbean and then WarbirdRadio.com. Uh, you can find all the episodes on there again um, through that. There's about 15 shows on that website, but just click on the show link and you'll see the afterburn up there towards the top and check it out. But uh, again, if people are interested, go check it out, subscribe, leave me some feedback. It definitely makes a difference and uh, helps me out. Awesome. Well, thank you again. We really appreciate it. Likewise, guys. Thanks for uh, having me on here. I enjoyed it. Well, that was a fun interview. What did you think, Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. You know, our first interactions with Rain go back a couple of years when, you know, Rai Tai and I met with him up in Rhode Island just for a few minutes and just got to chit chat and get to know Rain. Uh, so coming full circle, um, loved the conversation that we had with him and he's just a great guy and, uh, and we all know him from his performance, but 
which is what a tremendous individual. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like I said in the in the opening, I quickly became a fan of not only performance, but uh, but Rain himself, um, what he did for uh, the aviation, Air Force, air show community, um, you know, just really solid person. Um, and on top of that, great storyteller. Oh, yeah. And, and what he continues to do. You know, the, I loved when he was talking about, you know, the one guy that, you know, couldn't get to the Air Force and then uh, went the other option and still got to fly. And, um, you know, he's still making a tremendous impact and he's still an influence. So getting to hear that was really, really, really neat. Yeah, I I agree. And, um, you know, I, I may be alone here, but I, I really like the behind the scenes stuff and, you know, what's going on in the at an air show for that matter. And, and for having him to you know, sit down and just kind of answer some of those questions and talk about what goes into putting the demo together and all the hard work that his maintainers did. Uh, that was just, that was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. And even, even the, the music thing that I thought that was pretty funny too. Um, cause I didn't know the full dynamic with that, you know, cause I can't, can't imagine he has any, uh, any kind of music going in his headset when he's flying, he's focused on fo- uh, flying the jet. Yeah. It's, I thought it was kind of cool that, um, you know, even on that, you know, it's one of those things that um, audio at an air show, in a lot of cases, I would rather just leave it and say, take down the speakers and, and don't put them in front of us and let us watch the show. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but uh, his show, I don't know why, but they just did a really nice job of um, it just enhances it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they recognize that and, you know, did a really nice job of actually producing a show that right. um, wasn't just afterburner noise, um, just added on top of it, to just make it that much better. Well, that should do it for this episode. I want to say thank you to Ryan for getting up early uh, this morning to, to join us, and, and especially Rain as well. Uh, I know he had a busy day today and really appreciating um, appreciate him squeezing us in. You can find Ryan Kelly at, at Aviation on Instagram, and you can find me at gravity.images on Instagram. This is Nick Moore signing off until next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Full Disc Aviation is a group of aviation photographers and enthusiasts that are passionate about sharing our love for aviation with you. Visit our website at fulldiscaviation.com for exclusive interviews, stories, and photo galleries, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for frequent content updates. Also, please leave us a review in iTunes. We always welcome any feedback that can improve the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. And don't forget, Full Disc begins at 1 60th.